Jazz is like a telescope, and a lot of other music is like a microscope. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts in England and Sweden, Matthew Russell and Limbolt Christmas. Oh yeah, baby, jazz snobbery. <laughs> the best kind of snobbery. The only acceptable yeah. kind of snobbery. Yeah, that that it does seem like a little bit of a a, a snobbish thing to say, but he, I, I I get the point. It's Kamazi Washington. You get the point that uh, telescopes are somehow more revered than microscopes. What do you think? I think they're way better. Who needs to see little bacteria and stuff? That just makes you sick. Whereas stars are sick. So that's my mm. logic. <laughs> I saw, I saw another quote, which I thought was quite cool, about telescopes are your view into the future, whereas microscopes are your view into the present. And that's Ooh. why the present seems so enormous. Ooh, I like that. I wonder what uh, high redshift galaxy people would think about uh, the future, the yeah. past, I guess. I just don't know. I just don't Nobody know knows. anymore. <laughs> Nobody knows. So, Lynn, t- it's really exciting. Go on, tell us where you've been. Go on. Well, so I guess the reason we're talking about telescopes is because I just got back from observing with the very large telescope in Paranal, Chile. And I just got back like 72 hours ago and I'm still really jet lagged, but I was so excited. I haven't even had coffee and this is just pure excitement that I'm being fueled by right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I I am very, very jealous, but then I did also have a South American trip earlier this year. Exactly, and I was jealous. It's hard work being a podcaster. Oh, such luxurious jet-setting <laughs> travels, you know. <laughs> Mind you, you weren't doing it on behalf of the podcast, were you? You were doing it as part no, of your part uh, research. Part yes, of your exactly. research. Yes, so the jet-set life of academia. Uh, no, I was extremely uh, lucky and I feel very privileged and I'm very grateful that I was able to go. Um, so it was as part of my research that I do here. Um, so I was using an instrument uh, as part of the Very Large Telescope. Worth explaining. So basically, the Very Large Telescope is a, you know, plus points for accuracy, minus points for creativity in describing it. Because, <laughs> yes, it's a Very Large Telescope. Um, but it's actually made out of four large telescopes that then sort of can be used in combination with each other, but usually they're just used uh, one uh, one at a time. And uh, so on these large telescopes, you also have instruments that are sort of attached uh, to them on the side. So the light goes in through the telescope and then it goes through an instrument that then does uh, whatever it's designed to do. Uh, so there's a specific instrument on one of the four telescopes at VLT. Uh, which is called Cryris Plus, uh, which is a uh, infrared spectrograph, which basically Pink Floyd style that it takes the light and splits it up into a pretty rainbow. Um, and then we're able to look at the light received. And then we can say, right, well, there's loads of blue light here and not a lot of red light. And there's this much of this wavelength. And then we're able to figure out um, the thing that we're looking at. It can tell us something about its chemistry or you know its temperature, whatever it is that we're investigating. Um, so spectrographs are very powerful. It's 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 a very much a uh, important part of astronomy. So I went to Chile for two weeks, um, and um, it was actually only three nights of observing. Uh, that's kind of in the middle of that, which doesn't. I don't know if that sounds like a lot or not a lot. Uh, it's 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 kind of standard uh, amount of time to be observing. Uh, obviously, you're doing the night shift. <laughs> which is challenging. Um, And I went from Europe and then Chile and then immediately tried to get onto nighttime in Chile. And then I, the time zones were very confusing. 
Um, Why didn't you just stick to European time? That's what you should have just... You know, it's really funny. And it's also uh, when when uh, when you get there. So basically you, you arrive first into Santiago, the capital. Um, because the thing is that as part of the European Southern Observatory, ESO, um, you actually have... Uh, more than one telescope. So par- the one on Paranal, which is the name of the mountain, um, is then VLT. And you also have um, uh, other ones that we'll hear about later in this episode. Uh, and so when you go there, you usually fly into Santiago, the capital. And then from there, um, you fly onwards. Uh, you go to the ESO guest house if you're lucky. And then you stay in this weird Airbnb style thing, except there are people that work there and they serve you food. And then there's always weird astronomers there. And you're like, oh, hey, what do you do? And they're like, oh, well, like I'm observing these kinds of galaxies. You're like, okay, cool. I'm doing planets. <laughs> so then, and then you're at the guest house and then you uh, have to go to uh, Paranal, which means that you have to take a two hour flight to another city called Antofagasta. And then you drive up the mountain um, and then you do the observing there. And it's so funny because it's uh, it's it's like a cowboy movie or something because you don't meet at a time, you meet at sunset, <laughs> which then obviously changes over the year. So it's like, yes, we must ascend to the mountain at sunset, meet me at dusk. And like we, and then, and then someone checks the watch and they're like, which is like, what, like 1912 today? Yeah, okay, I guess quarter past, we'll meet in the lobby. <laughs> um, but it is, it is governed by, by the night. And then when you start observing, there's this big uh, timer thing on the screen that says like, eight hours and 46 minutes until end of night. And that's what how long you have to do your observations, which is a bit stressful, actually. Are you the only person observing or are lots of other di- no. different people observing? Because it does seem like a long time. It's three yes. days on like this insanely expensive facility and you're just a research student from yeah. Sweden. <laughs> so trust. it seems just... <laughs> but yes. No, but I mean, I'm presumably there's thousands and thousands no, of no, astronomers no, no. Exactly, who, want, exactly. who, want, who want time on this thing. So Absolutely. You, you you say that you're observing, but is there's a group of scientists like yourself who are who are observing the same patch of sky? Kind of case by case. Sometimes it is uh, one visiting astronomer, which is the name of what I was. Um, in my case, I went with uh, uh, my colleague Adam Rains, and so we were observing together as the visiting astronomer team for that instrument. So, like I said, there's the four telescopes that have different instruments. So, in the control room, you've got different sections where it's like the people that are using on the different uh, telescopes. So they have different names. Um, the boring names is UT1, UT3, UT2, uh, etc., which is the unit telescopes. But they do also have some um, more meaningful names that were given to them um, from the Mapuche language, which is um, the indigenous people of that area. Antu, which means sun. Kueyen, which means moon. Uh, Melipal, which is the Southern Cross. And Yepun, which is evening star or Venus. Obviously, I have not pronounced these correctly at all reference to the the area in which the telescope is built. Um, so we were using Melipal, which is UT3. But they all have like the largest mirror that you could practically have. After that, the glass starts kind of sagging, doesn't it? So yeah. it's the biggest mirror that you could possibly have, 8.2 metres. To make this kind of thing, like give this ridiculous resolution, they're, they're an interferometer, but instead of doing that statistically, the light goes down into a tunnel and then they're, they're combined there. Is that right? Because that, that's the thing I can't 
get my head around is that that, that you kind of actually physically combining light from yeah. all four telescopes, yeah. unit telescopes. It's it's quite tricky. And, and because I don't use the interferometry setting, I don't know loads about it, I'll be honest. And I'm not an engineer. Um, is it like a setting? How do you do the setting? Is it like on a big lever or is it a button? <laughs> I just have it on the interferometer setter and you have yeah, to go yeah. in. and. Well, so you've got the four uh, large unit telescopes and then you've got these auxiliary telescopes as well, which are smaller ones. Um, and they slide around, this little ones, they slide around on tracks, uh, which is very cute, like a, like a, a tramway tracks, kind of. So what they can do is that they um, can move them around to create a long, larger baseline. Um, for the four unit telescopes, there is, Espresso is one of the instruments that can use light from all four at once. Um, but it's it's very difficult. And it's, not, it, it's more that it increases the amount of light collection by the mirror size, but it's not exactly the same as making one big mirror. Um, so it's a bit tricky like that. Um, but uh, the interferometry setting is, is is very, very useful and important. I also love, they told a story about uh, there was some fancy ambassador that was visiting uh, the telescope. And uh, one of the telescope operators had to physically grab him and pull him because he was about to start walking on these lines, which you're not supposed to do because that's where the light is being very carefully <laughs> sort of sent around. Uh, so they had to basically push this uh, poor political ambassador onto the floor, like, do not walk there, please. Do not walk on the <laughs> yeah, lines. Exactly. So, yeah, oh, or the bears will get you. So, exactly. Yeah, apparently when it is in interferometer mode, you can you can achieve uh, an angular resolution. Yes, exactly. That's, equiv- that's equivalent to seeing headlights of a car on the moon. Yeah, <laughs> it's... It's pretty crazy, um, and and what kind of science you're doing dictates if what kind of instrument is is best for you to use. Um, but to answer your question about uh, the people in the control room, so yeah, um, you go you go as a small or larger team, um, you know, a couple of people probably from the science team. Um, then you also have something called a night astronomer with you, uh, night astronomer and day astronomer sounds like a crime fighting mm-hmm. duo. <laughs> Uh, so the night astronomer is the person who sits with you in on the run, and um, then you also have the telescope operator. So you're you're basically however many visiting astronomers, and then at least like two more people who sort of actually control the telescope and um, help and make sure that everything's going smoothly and stuff like that. VLT is actually a bit of an unusual one because it's so like fancy and state of the art that it's such a seamless operation and with so many people that work on it that it's actually more hands off than some of the smaller telescopes. If there's a smaller telescope, then you're the night astronomer and the telescope operator and the scientist, like you're doing everything. But with VLT, Mm. it's much more uh, sort of divided up. And then in the control room, you also have like whoever many people are observing with what kind of instruments so it can be it can be quite full i think there was you know i'd say maybe like 12 people in the room when i was there maybe something like that um so i was certainly not alone yeah i mean i actually think that that's quite a small number when you consider yeah. when you consider the these things are like like you said they're super cutting edge technology yeah. where they're where they're incredibly expensive i mean exactly. like, the, 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 like a lot of money and then you think well it's just one person there yeah. looking out ar- looking after it when exactly. a, when a rabble rabble like yourself arrive i mean i i definitely wouldn't think that you were going to be there driving the telescope no. yourself when <laughs> it's just like t- turn up and you go like yeah there you go Let's there's go. the Here keys, the keys. Exactly. there's the keys it's up the mountain there just help yeah. yourself yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you'd be, exactly sir, but I mean, you're also observing on behalf of everyone. So like the me and my colleague went and we were observing, but we were observing on, on account of 
uh, not just our university's group, but also some of our collaborators. So really we were representing, you know, like 20 people more like. Um, mm. So it's also just that because you don't need all 20 people in the room. Um, and so, and because we have that whole telescope for the whole night, then, I mean, no one else can use it. We're using it. Sorry. Yes, New Zealand, it's our turn. <laughs> so it's yeah. also just that there's a limit that like, well, there's like four, four-ish telescopes. So there can really only be four-ish groups at one given time. Um, and sometimes less yeah. than that if they're using in, in combinations and stuff like that. Well, just, just to put it into perspective of how popular this telescope is, it's over one peer-reviewed scientific paper per day published <laughs> using wow, VLT data. That's yeah, funny. six in 2017, 600 peer-reviewed papers that used VLT data. So it, it's like it's, it's insanely insanely important in terms yeah. of yeah. where what, the research, astronomy research. Let me yeah. tell you something else. When I was there, I saw the construction site for ELT. The, yeah, so ELT. Extremely large, which is such a joke. I'm sorry, I can't get over. It's such a delightfully stupid name. I mean, I love stupid things. So it's, you know, I'm, the extremely large telescope, yeah, is actually is actually not what they plan to build in the first place. They plan to build the overwhelmingly <laughs> large telescope. I don't know, <laughs> like that's was, too big. Up, that's yeah, just too big. But, but but it ended up being too big. Yeah, <laughs> too expensive. So so they had to reduce it down yeah. to the extremely large extremely telescope. Extremely large telescope. But they wanted to build the overwhelmingly yeah. large telescope. <laughs> <laughs> so that every time every time you went up there you'd yeah. faint because exactly. it's like oh my god it's so I'm big oh. over, yeah. and you'd no have to be smelling yeah because <laughs> it was overwhelming exactly it's just too, it's, it's just, just too big yeah. it's overwhelming extreme is okay someone yeah, told yeah, me yeah. i met i met uh, an engineer um who was working on the elt and they said that they um they were playing around with like a, a virtual reality headset and they figured out a way to make like a render of the elt of like what it would look like when when it was done and they did everything and they're like, okay, let's try it. Put the headset on and they're like, oh gosh, whoops, haha, looks like I got the scale wrong. This is ridiculous. This is enormous. Took it off. No, that's actually how big it's going to be. <laughs> we're like the engineer yeah. says, we're like, oh, whoopsie, no, no, this is way too big. And then it's like, oh shit, actually, no, that's no, it. Yeah, it's the, well, the, the clue is in the name, isn't it? It, it, it is, is extremely ext large. It is extremely large, yes. not but not overwhelmingly so. Exactly. So this is basically what how so the the very large telescope is on one a, a mountain bit, let's say, um, that is a few hundred meters above uh, where the place that you stay is. So there is this hotel type thing uh, that you stay in, which is so cool because number one, did you know it was in Quantum of Solace, the James Bond movie? It was featured as the secret lair of the villain in that movie. Uh, and oh, so if you watch yeah, it, yeah. the scenes from like the tropical uh, hotel bit is, is actually the hotel where the astronomers stay when they visit VLT. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And there's this really cool thing where basically you walk in and it is a rainforest with a pool and it looks so fancy and tropical. And you're like, why are all these astronomers hanging out in like a tropical hideaway? But there's actually a reason. So um, the telescope itself is up on this sort of slightly higher bit of the mountain, but you're still sort of 2,400 meters above sea uh, when you're staying in the residential area. And um, the problem is you can imagine you need to be quite close to uh, the telescope 
and there's all these uh, crazy astronomers on a night schedule <laughs> who are there. So you've also got people that are at the hotel that aren't up on the telescope at night. Um, but you can't have a big building with the lights on right next to the telescope, right? So the hotel is built into the ground, underground, and um, they have this sort of skylight there where they open it in the in the daytime to let the light in. And then they put a curtain over it in the uh, during the evening or during the nighttime, uh, so that you don't get light pollution onto the telescope. And the skylight is then um, down onto loads of plants, and there's a water, uh, a swimming pool there. But it's because we're in the desert and it's so dry. So actually, having this there makes it then nice and humid inside the hotel. Um, so it's it's not actually just for sort of looks and and. Uh, the tropical vibes <laughs> on a holiday it, feel. That, yeah. It's also just well, to I mean, make the, the, the air nice. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, of course that is the reason why you're in Paranal is yeah. because it's dry. It's so dry. You get there and you just start having nosebleeds immediately. Is that right? Basically. <laughs> oh my God. So, also, so, and I got so nauseous. I had, uh, I had altitude sickness. I felt horrible. So you're super high up. The yeah. air's thin. Yeah. Not only is the air thin, there's no moisture in the air. Nope. So, which means that it's a, it's almost like having a, a, a space telescope, isn't it? Because you're, you're, Pretty you're kind much. of out of the worst bits of the atmosphere. But exactly. you're, you've still got quite a bit of atmosphere above you. Oh, absolutely. So how does VLT compare to, say, James Webb? They're seeing in the same light, aren't they? They're, seeing, yeah. they're both seeing in infrared. Excellent right? question. And actually, so the instrument that I use um, on VLT is very similar to some of the instruments on JWST. Um, and which is really cool because it means that you can use them together and um, basically get the best of both worlds. So uh, JW has the benefit that it is um, above the atmosphere, so you don't have any atmospheric disturbances. Um, but because it's a space telescope and we have to pack it into an Ariane 5, it can't be that big. Like it, it, we can't make it uh, an eight meter enormous, uh, like mm. the ones on the ground. And that's the benefit of ground telescopes is that you can make these larger mirror sizes and you can do maintenance and upgrades and stuff like that. Um, and so by, if you say that you take JW and uh, VLT and you sort of check out the same target, then you have JW that's giving you nice uh, non-atmospheric disturbances uh, on there. And then you're getting a higher resolution with the ground-based telescope. So, I mean, using them together like that when you have a overlap in the wavelength range is, is really cool. And that is actually what we're doing as well. So that's very exciting. One of the most exciting things I think about these telescopes is is the fact that to, to even even still you've got this atmosphere above you mm. you have to compensate for the atmosphere and you have this adaptic optics oh my and God. they fire and and so the telescope fires a laser up into the atmosphere do you actually see the laser can you actually see the matt, laser being fired into the into the atmosphere matt matt this is the coolest part Oh my God, do you ever? They are so bright and they are perfectly visible. And uh, so so the control room is basically immediately next to the platform where the telescopes are. Um, so sometimes when you've got uh, like a, a long exposure, let's say, sometimes, sometimes you're taking an observation that's only like 10 minutes and sometimes you're taking them that's a few hours. Uh, so some of, the, some of the nights when we had some longer exposures, um, you know, you were allowed to go out on the platform to look at the stars which, oh my God, the stars, uh, and get some fresh air. 
And one of the nights we went out onto the platform and the lasers turned on while we were still there, like a few meters away. And it went, and it just, it's, I think, 40,000 times the permitted uh, wattage of a normal laser pointer. They are bright, (laughs) bright, bright, bright orange, um, perfectly visible to the naked eye. The first time I saw them was the first night I arrived when I was stood more closer to the hotel and I saw them from a distance, but they are like huge bright beacons. Um, I really seriously can't believe how they work. It seems like it's got to be one of the most technologically genius and hard things to do. I'm right in saying, aren't I, that that, that the lasers are shot up into the atmosphere Mm. and then another sort of telescope is looking at at how how much it's wobbling. Yeah. And then applies that the kind of inverse of that wobble yeah. to mechanically alter the mirrors yes, so that they're absolutely always sort of tracking the wobble. So you're taking the wobble out like a sort of, it almost like for sound engineers, it's a bit like a balanced microphone cable, Yeah, but it's, it's like, it's, it just seems incredible that you can actually bend this mirror to that kind of resolution just seems like, phenomenal do you do you actually if you're if you were standing next to the mirror would you be able to hear the adapt this this adaptive optics working do you know yeah if you could hear it i'm not really sure actually the the telescopes were very quiet in general the the cooling is actually something that makes uh, a lot more of the noise and there was this uh, amazing sound of uh, like uh, like uh, steampunk robot crickets as you go out there because there's this constant sort of chattering that's kind of off-putting kind of reassuring the adaptive optics uh, are, are really amazing and and that's exactly how they work that basically they fire the lasers um, to excite it's the sodium layer in the atmosphere specifically and um, apparently it's a sodium layer I read this recently that it's uh, the layer from uh, old ionized uh, uh, meteors uh, that exist in the earth's atmosphere so we're using the old uh, meteors to uh, look at our stars because basically that's well, what it does that when is, it that when is, that is cool if we have a bright star close enough to the target that we're observing then we can use that one as our reference um, but if we don't have that then we create, a quote laser guide star, um, which we then um, use as the reference, because what we do is by checking how much the atmosphere is interfering with the light from that bright target, we can, as you say, sort of subtract that from our real observations where so that it's easier to tell. So yeah, it was uh, discovered by Vesto Slifer. And that sodium layer pretty much hovers at the boundary of space, so it's yeah. it's somewhere. It, it, it its altitude varies, obviously, yeah. uh, depending on the season, etc. But yeah, it's normally eighty to one hundred and five kilometers. Yeah, yeah. So it's just about where space, the Kármán line, hundred yeah. kilometer Kármán line. So yeah. that, that that's really, and yeah, below it, obviously, they become sodium oxide, and yeah. above they're they're ionized. So you, you it's this really, sp- and like you said, yeah, it's the uh, yeah ablation of meteors. Mm-hmm. So cool, isn't that great? That is that is amazing. Yeah, that's if, really cool. If, but so if you're looking at pictures of VLT and you're seeing these uh, these uh, laser beams, like they basically look that bright in real life, which is crazy. It's just like yeah. a big, like the coolest light festival rock show you've ever been to. I was going to say, I think I, I've always just assumed that they've been drawn on as a kind of, oh, this is yeah, what a laser right. would look like. But uh, yeah, I guess it's a laser, isn't it? So you kind of, that's the weird thing about lasers that is that you do see them from the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, a, yeah. Light, like exactly. a lightsaber. So you can imagine 
my fear, shock, surprise, and scream when it suddenly went and went on, and it was pretty much instant. Like just shot. It would. It is didn't... there a is there a is there a sort of laser noise with them, like a lightsaber? That. <laughs> <laughs> I get. I think. I think. Yeah. I think there is a little bit of a noise from the, but from the actual instrument. I guess uh, it's not. It's not the <laughs> the beam. It's and not that's the actual. <laughs> exactly. Maybe ninety kilometers up, there is a bit of noise going on as well. Who knows? I I actually genuinely think it must be one of mankind's greatest achievements using they using lasers to kind of yeah. wobble to to wobble. Yeah. No. But I mean that it it really must make an enormous difference because presumably does. that is that that must be incredibly hard to implement and, yeah. and must be one of the sort of parts of the telescope that needs servicing the most and calibrating etc etc yeah, must probably. be incredibly difficult so while you're out there you managed to uh, interview one of your colleagues i uh, did uh, so, to, so so tell us a little bit about that before so, we go a cootaying um, and for once, I actually was the one who. who uh, I know. I can't yeah. believe it. This 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 might be a. Is this a first? I is think this a so. first? My where my interviewing. I have, I have a roaming reporter <laughs> <laughs> out in the field. Um, so I was very lucky to uh, snag um, my friend and colleague James Miley, who is based in Santiago as an Alma postdoc fellow um, at the Joint Alma Observatory (JAO) um, and is uh, project research staff there. Um, and he'll be telling you in more detail what he does and why he does it and why it's the coolest thing in the entire world. And now, before we go, before we go to that interview with James, let me ask you a question: What were you doing in? What were you doing? Me, Lynn. In, yeah, wh- yeah. What were you doing? <laughs> what were you? Yes, you. What were you doing, Lynn? Yes, that's you. Oh, that's you. I think that's your name. Yeah. You're on the spot. What 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 was it that you were observing? What what part of the what night sky were you observing, and why were you doing it? So, well, <clears throat> I'm not, I can't tell you the exact targets, obviously. Wow. <laughs> oh wow! Oh. No, but um, so would as you far- have to kill me? Yes, if you of did. course. Um, but oh, dear. or or just politely send you an email to be like, please don't tell anyone. Um, which is a bit not. I I I kind of went nearly full Bond fantasy by staying at this hotel, but not quite. Um, so yeah, no, so for me, I was studying, um, or I was, uh, observing, um, a couple of different things actually, because, um, we're part of this consortium, which then, uh, does a couple of different so-called science programs. Um, so we were looking at some radio velocity measurements, which is when we do the wibble wobble, um, of stars to get masses of exoplanets. Um, and we also did some of these transits that I talk about so much where we get to observe, um, some exoplanet atmospheres, which is obviously the best part. Um, and we also do actually some observations of, um, stars, uh, magnetic fields, specifically in binaries, um, where, uh, because the Kairos, um, plus instrument does have this polarimetry, uh, thing that you can use to, to look at that, look at, uh, magnetic fields. So mixed bag, uh, very exciting. Uh, it was nice to have uh, a couple of different things going on. And I also learned um, about other things. <laughs> what, why the secrecy about where, where it was pointing? Why, why, why no, are no, you not, not to... It's not It's not that much of a secrecy. People could look it up if they really want to. But I mean, in general, the, the practice is to, to not be like, hey, everyone, so we just took this observation of such and such planet. Hope we're going to find some molecules because then someone else can do the same or beat you to it. Or Oh, I see. So it is, it is you're on, in a race. Kind a of little to, bit and like to... i said it's not it's it's you can like if you know the nights i was observing someone could look up and see like what were the things that were observed um that day but it's 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 good practice to not to brag about your planet targets <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that's no. it. That's interesting. Okay, yeah. that is interesting, actually. So yeah, this was an interview uh, with James, um, which was actually done at the uh, ESO headquarters office in Santiago, um, because um, I was able to catch uh, James while he was on his shift, where uh, basically the astronomers who are based in Chile, they do sort of one week in Santiago in the capital and then one week up in the mountains. Um, so I managed to to snag him um, to have this lovely chat. Julio, I'm avenging you. Ecoute! <laughs> the Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. Hi. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. Thank you so much for letting me talk to you. So we're sat here in the most beautiful office building in Santiago, Chile, and I am so excited to hear about your research. Cool, thank you very um, much for having me. So tell us about what you do. What is your role here? Yeah, so I am a postdoctoral fellow at the AMA Observatory. So that means I finished my PhD, came to AMA, and my current job is split into two parts. I spend half my time working for the observatory, helping them run the place and keep things going. And the other half is doing research, scientific research into the things that I'm interested to. Um, so the observatory half of stuff is really interesting. There's loads of different areas you can get involved with but the best bit is being astronomer on duty we went and had a look at the control room just now downstairs it was amazing <laughs> we can observe from santiago remotely or we can go to where the observatory actually is in the north of chile in the atacama desert which was a location specifically chosen for being perfect for millimeter radio kind of observations um so when we're on the job when we're astronomer on duty we are I will sit there with an operator helping me. They yeah. will be looking after the antennas themselves because Alma is an observatory made of 66 different antennas all working together. They're making sure that nothing 66? breaks. 66? 66. Oh my God, I thought it was so much less. I don't know what number I thought, but not 66. They can be super close together or we can move them around and they can be up to 16 kilometers apart. Jesus. Those were my facts and figures. Yeah. 66 <laughs> and 16. They're yeah. the ones I remember. That's, a, that, that's good to easier to remember. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't mix um, them up, though. It's not 66. No. <laughs> no <they're> not, sorry. <laughs> um, so, yeah, when we're on the job, I'm sitting there in front of my computer, choosing which bits of science get to be observed yeah. at what time. Um, and we're making those decisions based on the weather, what stars are in the sky at the time, which ones are about to set, yeah. um, what needs to be done quickly. If there's something that lasts only a very short amount of time, then obviously we need to do that as a priority. Yeah. Other things need really high sensitivity so we need to look at them for hours and hours and hours yeah and that kind of thing so we're balancing all these different issues we've got going on and choosing which bits of science to do yeah which is super cool yeah because the thing about alma is that it's radio telescopes right and yeah. they don't look like when i picture a telescope or at least before i started doing astronomy it's like the big binoculars but it's one long tube that you look through yeah that's a telescope right yeah so we're not looking through a lens anymore we're not even here at Alma measuring sort of brightness and position, which is what we're usually looking at through a normal telescope. Alma's an array of these 66 different antennas and they're working together and to get a little bit physics-y for a bit. Oh, no. What we're really looking at <laughs> is the, the pattern, the interference pattern between the waves that the two antennas are measuring. Yeah. So what we're really combining is the signals from each pair between these antennas, yeah. each of the 66, we draw a line between them. And those that's the real data, that's the real measurement. And we have yeah. to sort of convert that back to what makes sense in our human minds. Yeah. Sort of what that's 
disc looks like, what yeah. a galaxy looks like, whatever yeah. it might be. Um, so that presents its challenges when you're doing the science, when you're working with it and you're having to do some serious number crunching afterwards, but it allows us to do some things that we wouldn't usually be able to do with yeah. traditional forms of observing. Yeah. Um, there are still single dish radio telescopes. There's loads of them out there yeah. that are super powerful and super sensitive. Um, but the key thing about ALMA and having all these different antennas and being able to shuffle them all around yeah. the desert is that we can zoom in and zoom out basically. Yeah. So when things are, when our two antennas are at a maximum of 16 kilometers apart, yeah. we can zoom in and see details that we never even dreamed of seeing beforehand. Yeah. You can see the gaps in which we think planets exist or yeah. you can see resolved bits of galaxy arms that we never really thought of being able to see before. Yeah. Or you can smush them all back together and that gives you other benefits. You can get super sensitive then and you can really start to work out, I don't know, how heavy your galaxy is yeah. or how much of a certain molecule exists in certain parts yeah. of the sky and that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's super versatile yeah. that, and this spreads countless different subtopics within astronomy. Yeah. Um, so it's really useful. Yeah. It's really cool. Well, yeah, because I guess it's like, there's so many things in astronomy that actually emits in the radio, like, I mean, x-rays and things like that. It's really only the most powerful, um, like black holes and things like that. Yeah. But radio, I mean, there's so many things you can do with radio. It is. And radio is different because the stars are different at radio wavelengths. Stars are generally quite radio quiet, as we yeah. say. So we don't have to worry as much about the sun, for example. We can observe. Yeah all through the day. Yeah. So the other astronomers think we're kind of weirdos, we're outcasts because <laughs> we do our observing yeah. in the day as well. Um, no night shifts. Well, there's night shifts too. There is night shifts too. <laughs> usually the night shifts are better weather, better conditions. Yeah. And actually our best work's usually done in the night. But there is someone driving Alma right now and yeah. choosing projects to have a look at. We just went to look actually. They're looking yeah. at the sun right now. Yeah. I was saying the sun's usually quite quiet. You can yeah. also look at the radio yeah. signal of the sun. But... This is useful because when you take the stars away or yeah. make them super quiet, you can look at what's left. Yeah. You can look at the things that are around the stars or in between the stars or have been ejected from a star. Yeah. Um, in there, there's a whole rich world of science you can yeah. start to do. Yeah, because the the these recent black hole images, they were with radio astronomy, right? Yeah. So those are really interesting. That's a whole new different type of observing. So these black holes are tiny 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 fraction pinheads in the sky they're yeah. so hard to see and resolve um so then we're not just observing with alma we're not just putting antennas 16 kilometers apart if you really want to zoom in and see the event horizon of a black hole which is what we're starting to be able to do now you need help from other telescopes um, so what they do for those observations is to sync up alma's observations at the same time as radio telescopes in the US mm. and in Europe and in Australia and everywhere else so that everybody's pointing exactly the same bit of sky yeah. exactly the same time yeah. and then we're putting all those signals back together and you're effectively simulating a telescope the size of the earth yeah. um, so that's when they can really start that's pushing so cool. the boundaries and yet radio millimeter astronomy tends to be looking at the cold universe it's the stuff that's not super energetic or yeah. it's just blown up it's <laughs> things that have calmed down a bit it's yeah. dust and gas that's floating around so those images of the black hole I used to have on there yeah <laughs> those images we saw of the black hole event horizon is the the dust and the material right at the very edge yeah. of 
what we know. Yeah. But once we're inside, we yeah. don't know what's going on. Well, that's because a lot of people are like, how can we take a picture of a black hole if there's no light coming from it? But it's it's the things around it. We didn't. Are, yeah. yeah. Exactly. We didn't really. We took the outline. We saw a shadow. And we tried yeah. to measure the size of that shadow. And once something's in there, it's not coming back yeah. out. So there's no signal. Yeah. But then, so... Oh, yeah. So your work, though, that's not in black holes, is it? No. I do stuff on a much smaller, closer scale. Yeah. Um, so my research, when I'm not working for Alma, doing the observing or doing the stuff behind Helping the curtain, out with the... <laughs> yeah. um, I look at... Well, I research in planet formation. Yeah. So I'm interested in protoplanetary disks. Protoplanetary just means it's something that's going to become a planet. And disc, because it's a disc, it's like it looks like a frisbee. It's sort of thin in one direction, but wide in the other direction. So think of a pizza chef making his pizza dough when he spins it around, it spreads out. Basically the same physics. So yeah. we've got a disc of dust, and by dust I mean like microscopic little grains of sand just floating yeah. around in space, and gas that's probably come been ejected from a star or was just floating around from part of the galaxy. And these things surround young stars, so baby stars, meaning only <laughs> less than 10 million years old. Yeah. So not much. Well, yeah, they, quote, strong quotations around young yeah. being yeah. 10 million years <laughs> um, And these are the guys that have dust and gas floating around them, gravitationally bound. And it's that environment, it's that dust and gas that we know is going to one day become a little row of planets yeah. like we've got in our solar system. So how do we get from disks of space junk, space dust and gas orbiting yeah. around a very young star to a star with a group of planets around it? And it turns out there's a lot of physics along that route, along that path yeah. that we need to work out. And using things like ALMA at millimetre or radio wavelengths allows us to zoom in on those cold environments, Yeah, allows us to pick up molecules that emit at those specific wavelengths that can tell us a lot about, for example the mass of the disk, the amount of material that's in there, or the way in which it's moving as well. Yeah. Um, all these things are parts of the puzzle that we can piece together to yeah. try and get a picture of what's actually going on. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, that's such a challenge. If there's, there's so much of astronomy is that we're looking at starlight, let's say, from galaxies or from, from whatever. And when it's a nice, bright target, that's nice and easy. But if you're looking at, like, cold dust, then it doesn't really shine brightly like that. So that's, I guess, why you have to look at sort of radio and, and, and longer wavelengths. Exactly. That's the other good point to make in that dust usually gets in the way. Yeah. The very first images of protoplanetary disks we were getting were at optical wavelengths, were at shorter wavelengths, and it was just shadows. Yeah. Just like silhouettes. Yeah. And you could see a Why is this star blocked out? It. Yeah. Exactly. And we're like, what's this smudge? What, what's going yeah. on here? Yeah. So when you go to your longer wavelengths, you start to pick up, even if something's at like, it can be as cold as... 20 degrees above absolute zero, it can yeah. be even less. But if the dust has got any thermal energy whatsoever, it yeah. will emit, and we can pick that up. So yeah. we can start to work out where the cold stuff is yeah. um, by moving to a different wavelength. Yeah. And we can peer into super dense regions yeah. that usually we wouldn't be able to see. If you think about these JWST images, they're yeah. amazing. But you can <laughs> see these sort of clouds and blocks of stuff, and you're wondering, well, what's going on in there? Yeah. Moving to a longer wavelength is one way in which you yeah. can do that and you can start to see. Because you're right, actually. I hadn't reflected on this, but when you look up pictures of protoplanetary disks and stuff like that, usually it's it's the, the ring is the bright thing, not the thing in the center. So yeah. I guess that that's 
that's the stars being quiet in the radio well, no, waves. Looking at the yeah. actual star and removing it can be super useful yeah. because it's a major problem for looking at discs with other yeah. instruments or observatories. You tend to have to literally put a big patch in the way of the star. Yeah. You have to take that away so Eye you can patch. see the rest of it. Yeah, yeah really. <laughs> and it's difficult and you have to sort of reconstruct things and do a bit of jigging and poking to get yeah. back what you really need. But yeah. this way, we skip that out. We're only looking at the disc itself. We're only looking at the building blocks for new worlds and what they're doing and yeah. what it is. Yeah. It's so cool. We're even doing moons now, some say. So we've got oh, yeah. into the resolution with Alma has got so good that we can see rings and gaps forming in these discs and yeah. computers. And we can even zoom in to look inside the gaps and people are starting to find clumps of dust and yeah. stuff within these gaps. And yeah. we think that those are beginning to form planets, sure, yeah. but the material around those planets yeah. may be forming moons. So it's like inception, it's like the rings around the rings around the yeah. rings. Around the <laughs> we can never stop zooming. We need more and more antennas. Yeah, exactly. Keep going and going and going. Exactly. Yeah. Because I mean when we look at obviously planets and protoplanetary disks, we're usually looking more in our galaxy. It's not things that are like crazy far away because I mean, you have to look at the individual star for that. And I mean, if you're looking at a galaxy, you're not really looking at individual stars. So. Absolutely, yeah. So the, the disks and the planets that we're looking at have to be fairly close for us to see the kind of details that we're interested in these yeah. days. So I was thinking about, I was going to say parsecs. <laughs> we're thinking about, let's do light years. So we're thinking about stuff that's no more than, I don't know, a thousand light years away. It's really hard to get the details we might want. Um, yeah. So Alma is super good at giving us really high detail imaging of yeah. systems, stars, planets that are relatively close to us in our local kind of area. Yeah. If you're interested in galaxies or star formation beyond our own galaxy, then yeah. Alma can also be useful. But yeah, you're looking at something yeah. a long, long way away, probably back in time as well. Yeah. So what are some of the exciting things you found in protoplanetary disks lately? That we found generally, um, Alma's been going for about 10 years now, and it's accelerated the field, like, I'm not sure anyone... Yeah, 10 years is not very long, actually. It's not very no. long at all, no. But we used to just think disks were these blobs. We had those images of, like, the shadows of the smudges, mm -hmm. um, but we didn't really know what the disk itself looked like. We could do some physics and simulations and make some predictions, but we hadn't seen it yet. Yeah. Um, some of the coolest things that I've seen come out of Alma specifically in the last few years was when they zoomed in and they looked at what the protoplanetary disks actually look like on smaller scales. So we can zoom into something like the same distance between the sun and the earth, for example. Yeah, wow. Um, and we started seeing all sorts of crazy little substructures within the dust and gas yeah. that was orbiting around these stars. So you can see gaps forming gaps in the pizza that yeah. <laughs> don't really have a reason to be there unless the there's something rings. in there pushing things out of yeah. the way, gobbling things up. And yeah. We thought, well, we did the work, we had a look at it, and it makes sense that some of these gaps have planets in the middle of them. Yeah. There's forming planets that are in the process of growing, yeah. eating all this material <laughs> and building. One day they're going to be things like Jupiter or the Earth, yeah. but at the moment they're in the process of forming. And so now what we're trying to do is look at this and look for these sort of um, signals or evidence that something's occurring, something's yeah. going on in the environment in which we know planets are forming and yeah. are growing. Yeah. We're suddenly looking for any little detail that show back. There's one. Yeah. What's it doing? Yeah. Is it, Ew, what is is it small? <laughs> is it weird, eccentric? Orbit? Yeah. Is it like the Earth? Is it like Jupiter? Is it like Neptune? Yeah. Um, so that's 
kind of exciting now. And people are finding all sorts of different ways to locate where a planet might be, what it might be doing. Yeah. And if that agrees with any of our theory at all. Yeah. Yeah, because there's something we've spoken about on this podcast before, that the crazy thing about some of the things we do in astronomy is that you can't you can't speed up the timescales to see the whole process. I mean, if you're a biologist studying fruit flies, then you get go through a couple of generations every few days, like you can see those effects. But for planet formation, we're just looking at snapshots of individual ones and we're saying, okay, this system is 2 million years old and this system is 10 million years old. How are they different at 2 and 10? And then maybe we can infer from that sort of how that system evolves. But it's very hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a pain. We don't have a lab. We can't yeah. poke things or prod things or... Influence it even stuff. really, yeah, at no. all. So often what we're doing... You take what, you take what the telescopes give you. <laughs> yeah, we're, exactly. We're stuck with what's there. We're stuck yeah. with the local regions of stars. We're stuck yeah. with what's close to us. And yeah. that is genuinely how we have to do things sometimes. We know certain parts of the sky are yeah. older. And we know, that, well, we know that stars in certain clumps or certain regions of the sky are older than other ones. We can try and look at what are the properties of the young ones, what are the properties of the old ones, and there's projects I'm in that are doing exactly this yeah. now. This is how I like to research it, actually. How does this environment and which planets form evolve? How does it change yeah. over time? Because yeah. the bits that are missing are probably in your planets. That's yeah. probably where they've gone. <laughs> exactly. Um, so we can look at old regions, we can look at young regions, try to guess what that pathway was. Yeah. But when we zoom in and we really look at individual systems, there's some crazy stuff they've got going on. We yeah. get weird spiral arms that we previously yeah. only saw in like galaxies and we get weird lopsided ones that yeah. seem to be much more dense on one side than the other or yeah. sometimes there's binary systems and there's all sorts of weird disruption going yeah. on so we can make some general rules that apply to most stuff but also the crazy stuff on small details yeah. really depends on what star you've got yeah. where its closest friend is and how they're interacting you know? yeah do you ever see sort of movement in the disc like if you're observing one disc for a longer period of time can you ever actually see the sort of Gas is moving around. Yeah, so we really? can do this thing with the molecular lines. Um, they just like, just like a, it's a Doppler shift. It's yeah. just like a police car going past you. Yeah. And it's in front of you, it makes a different sound yeah. just after. We can use the movement of a disc. We know it's rotating. Yeah. And we know it's rotating in a Keplerian manner. Yeah. That's our next physics word. <laughs> Hope you're all taking notes. Some of it's going away from us, some of it's going towards us. And so we know how it should rotate. And yeah. we can sort of see that in... The molecular line data when we look yeah. at molecules so we can see it rotating the really cool thing that people have done in recent years is we sometimes look at these gas discs and rather than giving us a perfect rotating mm -hmm. field yeah. rather than being what we expect there's a tiny tiny little section that's wrong and it seems like something's disturbing our perfect rotation pattern yeah and when people focus on those regions when they do a bit of work as to what this gas is doing they can tell that actually that might be a planet too yeah if there's a planet in that local area it's got mass it's gonna pull on all the gas that's around it suddenly you can see certain bits of the disc that don't behave yeah and that's because uh -oh. a planet's interfering it's eating gas it's taking it where it shouldn't be sometimes it's falling into these dust gaps we talked about yeah um so this is basically the game yeah what do we expect to see yeah What's wrong with the pictures that we do see? Yeah. And why is that? Is it a planet? Is it something completely else that's unrelated? It's a bit... We get a bit carried away with our planet hunting sometimes. <laughs> Discs and anything you see, people yeah. go, it's a planet, it's a planet. This one's got six rings, it must be six planets. 
Yeah, I, I, I never get overexcited about planets in the story. Never, I've done that. So you have to be a bit cautious sometimes because you don't yeah. want to publish something that someone next year says, well, that's rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> it would hurt your feelings. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. No, I think it, it's it's such an exciting time. And I mean, it's I think a lot of people don't realize that some of the planet stuff, planet formation, exoplanets, all of this is really within lifetimes it's it's in the last 30 years 20 years even 10 years yeah absolutely jumping in technology and in the yeah observatories and the instruments we've got now compared to as you say 20 30 years ago is yeah. incredible yeah and we know so much more about how we think planets might form how they yeah. might interact with each other yeah. before that the only thing we really had was our own backyard it was our own yeah. solar system yeah and it turns out that's kind of strange. Most yeah. of them don't look like this. Yeah. They don't have... Not a lot of planet formation rocks. happening in our solar system anymore no. either. <laughs> no, but I mean, you can also look at... This is another way to look at things. You can look at the really old systems that have already formed their planets yeah. and see what do they look like. Is that telling us anything about the planets that are already there? Because yeah. we've got an asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Yeah. And we've got what they call the Kuiper belt, which is around the edge of our solar system, yeah. outside of all of the planets. And if we were at... A different star trying to look at our solar yeah. system, you'd be able to see those. Yeah. You'd be able yeah, to see yeah. two little rings. And that's, that's the true. kind of thing I'm working on at the moment, actually. I'm <laughs> trying to see that kind of material yeah. in other systems. And perhaps the size of those rings, the separation between them and the shape of them are telling yeah. you something about the planets that live there. Yeah. But one of the, uh, uh, well, one, well, well, something that we've spoken about in the previous episode of this podcast is about. Um, when we used to talk about planet formation, I think it was maybe even easier sort of 30 years ago when we didn't have all this annoying data to prove our intuition wrong. And we talked uh, about the idea of a snow line where you have further out, it's like so straightforward. You have the rocky planets on the inside because it's hot and then the gas giants further out because it's cold, easy peasy. That's their snow line and beyond it, you get gas planets. And then we found all these annoying hot Jupiters that <laughs> are destroying that stupid idea. Yeah, absolutely. So, Even our terminology is bad because we yeah. like to say this one looks like Earth and this one looks like Jupiter. Yeah. I think I'm right to say the most common ones we find these days are what they call um, sub-Neptunes yeah. or super-Earths yes. or there's loads of hot Jupiters yeah. too, which means Things we don't our have. planets are <laughs> yeah. strange. Jupiter's a bit far out for where yeah, it should be and absolutely. Neptune's definitely weird and Super Earth weird. is pretty weird too <laughs> they're actually all weird and this weird sort of nice concentric little pattern they've all made it's yeah. also kind of strange and we have to do some quite contrived things to work out yeah. how we got there um, yeah. if we apply that model to everything else yeah. it definitely doesn't work yeah. um, so yeah, it's, um, there's plenty more to be looking at that's for sure yeah. God knows what happened with our solar system <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah. Let's let's start with figuring out all the other ones. Then we'll revisit ourselves. Yeah, it's exactly. it's uh, it's like going to therapy. It's hard to be introspective. It's a lot, it's a lot easier to find yeah. out other people. Exactly. Around, isn't it? yeah. It's a lot easier to judge others. Yeah. Exactly. So this is where we go acronym crazy. Okay. Yeah. Alma. Uh huh. Which is Spanish for soul, but it's an acronym. Uh huh. For Atacama Large Millimeter Array. Okay. Millimeter. Atacama being the desert. Atacama being the desert where it is, um, is a joint cooperative venture between three partners there's ESO yeah the Europeans there's NRAO which are the American North American sort of contribution yeah and there's NAOJ who represents sort of East Asian partners so this is kind of 
nice way to look at very things. international we're going to sort of um slightly simplify and romanticize this story but <laughs> all three of these different partners were trying to build were looking to build a millimeter observatory something mm-hmm. like alma for the future to yeah. push us forward and we've learned all these amazing things about protoplanetary discs and galaxies as we have since gone on to do but no one had the money to do it yeah no one had the expertise to do it all on their own when they started working out what it was going to look like. It was going to be huge, it was going to be expensive, and it was going to be difficult. So the three of them decided to work together. They found this location that was ideal in the world that was going to be super, super dry and very, very high up. Yeah, it turns out clouds are bad for looking at the night sky. Clouds are the worst, yeah. especially at millimeter wavelengths. Our yeah. worst enemy is water, water vapor. Oh, in the yeah, it's sky. like microwave. Yeah, I mean, exactly. literally, as in microwaving food, it's because water. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. So that will interfere with our signals. It messes things up, gives us noise. So we want somewhere that is super, super dry. Yeah. And they found the Atacama Desert, which looks like Mars. It's one of the driest places on yeah. Earth. It's super high up. Alma itself is at 5,000 meters. Yeah. So when you're there, you can really feel it in your eyes and your nose oh, yeah. and your ears and everything. Um, I, I was getting nosebleeds. <laughs> yeah, no, it's these things, headaches and all sorts. The only way they could do this was to come together, pull their resources and build this huge observatory on a plain, it's called the Chajnatok Plateau in the Atacama Desert in Chile. Um, So yeah, it required these three international organizations, which between them represent loads of different nations, people and experts from all over the world um, coming together to do it. So yeah, yeah, if you walk around this place, you'll hear people speaking English, Japanese, Spanish, yeah. Chilean, which yeah. is different to Dif- Spanish. Not Spanish, yeah. Um, and all sorts of things. So yeah. now, in that sense, it's super cool because yeah. you're exposed to so many impressive and incredible people and yeah. the knowledge they have is yeah. amazing. You can really learn quite a lot from these people. And as we talked about, there's so many different applications of radio astronomy. It's not just one type of object. Like, like I said, if you're doing high energy x-ray type gamma ray then it's, you're looking at gamma burst probably yeah. or something like that but there's 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 almost no field that doesn't have uh interesting radio astronomy yeah for sure and it's also useful that we've got this multi-wavelength view like yeah we can only learn so much from doing our stuff with alma yeah. usually to put it in context and to have the full picture you need to have got something a bit more optical or infrared or yeah. whatever it might be yeah. to complement what you've done otherwise you're just sort of yeah looking at something from yeah. one view yeah. and we know that you really need to combine as many different data points as many different yeah. bits of evidence as you yeah. can well also because not everyone knows that we can't do every kind of astronomy from earth and radio and optical slash kind of infrared um, are, are really the only ones that uh, we can do from earth because mm. they're the ones that can come through the atmosphere so exactly. thank you atmosphere for I guess it's a good thing, ultimately, that we don't get X-ray radiations like okay. on our skin all yeah. the time. Maybe, uh, oh, but yeah. I'm happy it's there. <laughs> yeah, but exactly. It does get in the way sometimes. Sometimes, right? yes, exactly. Um, but so Alma is then the sort of radio and millimeter part, and then you've also got uh, La Silla and Parnell, but they're not part of Alma; they're part of ESO, right? Yeah, those are ESO telescopes, also in Chile, um, in the north as well, in a similar part of the country because it's similar crazy mars be, landscape <laughs> yeah dry clear skies no um i don't know no other Humid. towns no humans no light pollution no yeah any of this stuff so it's it's ideal and yeah you find these dotted around in chile um there's telescopes all over chile actually but yeah iso runs la Silla and paranel they are building a brand new telescope the elt 
have you talked about astronomers naming things yet oh my god it's the extremely large telescope are you kidding me they have the very large (laughs) telescope it was the very large array and they were building a bigger telescope so they're calling it the extremely large telescope it's when i was a child i had a pet bunny called bunny i was destined to be an astronomer i guess that's the easter project right. yeah, exactly no it's 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 such an amazing thing and i mean i i love space telescopes and we talk a lot about james webb space telescope and 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 all this stuff um but uh there's something great about telescopes on the ground it's like that's the kind of astronomy humans have been doing for such a long time maybe not radio astronomy actually but like uh probably not yeah but no you're right there's there's an awful lot of stuff that we can do from the ground and often it's better to do from the ground like, yeah things like jwst are incredible and yeah it takes an awful lot of engineering expertise it takes a lot of money um, and these things only live so long like they get yeah. battered by space dust yeah. and over time they get they break down but yeah. if there's something here on earth we can maintain it we can fix it we can improve it yeah and so places like Paranal, Alma, yeah. um, and then the VLA and other places all around the world yeah. are sort of doing their, they're the ones cranking the wheel. We're the ones <laughs> yeah, exactly. astronomy day to day. And yeah. there's a lot we can find out just by observing from the yeah. ground. And we're still, there's still a hell of a lot of questions that we are trying to answer that yeah. we haven't even got close to answering yet. And putting together all those pieces yeah. requires big world-class institutions like Alma that often require international collaboration. That's a really nice thing I like about science. You can't do it on your own these days. Whether that's writing your own paper very rarely happens. You're usually (laughs) working with someone. If if you're writing your paper completely by your own, you'll be like, why why does no one want to work with you? You Why does no one else want to work on this project? (laughs) Who hurt you? Exactly. Yeah, that's something. No offence to all the astronomers who have written single papers, by the way. (laughs) This is just jealousy speaking, (laughs) FYI. Um, no, but I mean, we talk about this a lot with like ESA and you know Mars rovers and all of this. Everything in in space, I mean, is is basically collaborative and international at this point, which is yeah. which is so nice. I think people have realised it's much better to be collaborative. You can go much further, much quicker yeah. if you just work together. Being competitive doesn't necessarily help you. No, we're past space race kind of thing. Right? Yeah. It's much better if you work exactly. together. Exactly. And it means that sometimes you get to move to Santiago. Exactly. Yeah. Where the weather's perfect. Exactly. Because you live here full time. I do. I moved here. I used to live in England, in the UK, um, where it rains a lot. Yeah. And then I moved <laughs> down here for this job. And so I live in Santiago. We occasionally go up to the north to do our observing and to hang out in the desert. But most of the time, yeah, based uh, in Santiago, where the yeah. climate is Wonderful. Yeah, exactly. There's rarely ever rain. I love it. <laughs> yeah, and, and and working with everyone from Japan and the United States and the rest of Europe and Chile. Absolutely. Chile's got a real vibrant astronomy community going, actually. Yeah. And a lot of the, because the telescopes are here, there is a whole cluster of excellent astronomy departments in yeah. all of the universities in Santiago and yeah. other cities in Chile as well. Um, so there's always people passing through, coming to do observations, coming to visit. Um, so it's a really cool place to be working and doing yeah. these kind of yeah. investigations because you, you're really exposed to experts from all over the place who might be doing something completely different to you, but will have an insight or an idea that yeah. might help you. Yeah. Are there any um, space telescopes in sort of either in radio astronomy or that are just interesting for protoplanetary? Like, does James Webb do protoplanetary disk stuff? So James Webb, yeah, it's a very good... James Webb's got an image on it, an infrared image, which is useful for yeah inner regions of protoplanetary disks. Yeah. So Alma's very good at the cold stuff at yeah. 10, 20, 100, 1,000 times 
the space, the distance between Earth and the Sun. Yeah. If you want to look really close, if you wanted to look, for example, in between the Earth and the Sun in a different system, yeah. you'd need something a bit shorter wavelength, something like JWST. But the really cool thing from JWST for us is what it's going to find out about the planets. Yeah. Um, the spectroscopy it will do of their atmospheres will tell us what they're made of. Yeah. Roughly. Yeah. With some error bars, we can work out roughly yeah, what's in these yeah. atmospheres. And yeah. the really exciting thing that we're going to try and do, and there's a lot of bumps along the road to try and do this, but the really exciting thing we're going to try and do is link the composition of the atmospheres that GWST yeah. is finding yeah. with the composition of the disks that we're finding yes. out with all these molecules from our from other places. Because if we can draw a line between these yeah. two, we can start to say, well, this planet probably formed somewhere like this. And yeah. This environment is very good at giving us a, I don't know, a hot Jupiter yeah. or a yeah. weird Earth or yeah. whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, so that's the exciting goal we're going for, but yeah. it's going to be tough. Yeah, this is this is exactly, this is my like little soapbox of like, yeah. the, it is the soil from which the flowers grow. Of course, it's exactly. necessary and relevant. And uh, I think it's so interesting because it's kind of a shame. I think that a lot of the, a lot of the collaboration exists, but there's also not as much as collaboration as there could be between the planet formation people and the exoplanet people. Um, I mean, I want to know about planetary puberty. Like, what happened <laughs> in the in-between? Like, who hurt you? Who made you this way? Um, and That's I, a bit weird. Though, yeah. We're trying to catch things in the act. We're trying yeah. to see when something smashes into its twin and there's exactly. a collision. And exactly. And it just gets blown up or whatever might happen. Um, yeah. Knowing the weird cases is often really important because we can make as many theories and ideas yeah. as we want about our own solar system about our next door neighbor yeah. it's easy to look at but we've got no idea whether it's relevant for the rest of the universe no basically. exactly and it's like this is when when i do outreach talks i often talk about like imagine if you had never met another human and you'd be like okay well i have five fingers in each hand is is, is that too many fingers yeah. is that normal <laughs> or you could be like well i have purple hair which obviously everyone else does too yeah. and it's only once you start to compare to other you can figure out okay what's common and what's uncommon exactly. and what are the similarities and what are the differences and that's when you can figure out like what are things that are fundamental to the sort of physical mechanical process and what is then just a little quirk of uh how it happened to evolve chemically or whatever yeah it's kind of unusual to have just a single star actually most yeah, things are yeah. usually in binary systems there's two of them or there's three or there's four yeah most other planets are probably yeah. having like a tatooine kind of sunset. yeah yeah exactly Whereas it's kind of weird that we've just got the one that sits in the middle and yeah. minds its own business yeah we were so cocky we were like oh well obviously we need to start finding solar system and then we found out we're the weird kid yeah we're the ones with the enormous orbit yeah <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And a what star happened? that doesn't like anyone else, apparently. Exactly. It's a strong, independent star. Doesn't <laughs> yeah, need no don't else. need no binary system. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So I want to ask also my, my favorite question to ask people. It's if you imagine that you had infinite money and a magic wand, you could uh, dream up a new telescope or like a new project or just something to, to pave the way towards a specific kind of breakthrough. What would you try to... Like, what would be the one thing that would revolutionize your field the most like a kind of discovery wow. that's like eight questions in once i realize but i mean i can't maybe i'm biased i'm sitting here working at alma but yeah i think i'd like to build one of these on the moon if we remove oh God, all yes. that water all that atmosphere that yeah. annoys us all the stuff that comes with being on earth yeah um if we could stick this 
on the moon, so it's just looking out yeah. unimpeded the whole time. Yeah. That'd be incredible. Because the main thing we're fighting against here is the weather. Yeah. The, the wind. The <laughs> and you said the sun's like sometimes it's better at night. Certain so. projects need to be done at certain times and we're kind of limited and yeah. The telescope's so sensitive it can pick up when a cloud crosses over. Yeah. You can you can sometimes tell when the sun's rising before you can see the light because the temperature of the air is oh, changing. Yeah, and you can see that in your sort of in the noise we pick up and all yeah. sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, cloudy days are a pain. The Atacama has this whole second winter that comes around because of oh. crazy meteorological stuff that happens. There's a whole other podcast probably. <laughs> but yeah, even on the driest place on Earth, it can rain surprising amounts and gets yeah. in the way. There's a lot of snow up there because it's so high. Yeah. So if we could cut all of that out, yeah. stick it on the moon, yeah. have the clangers run it. <laughs> that, that's the, that's really what I would spend my money on, yeah. the clangers <laughs> first. And then the radio telescope is well, optional. We're working on the moon. There's going to be all sorts of union issues. So <laughs> yeah. we'll fund yeah, the lot of Space law, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I think something that not everyone realizes as well is that the sky changes. It's not just the same stars and the same galaxies in the sky all the time, you know, depending on what time of the year, what time of the day, things rise and set just like the sun. Yeah. So uh, you you got to schedule these things. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we have to build sort of a coordinate system to work out where everything is in the sky. But, yeah. you know, the Earth's orbiting the sun, it's rotating, the sun itself is moving through the galaxy, yeah. all this it's not, a, yeah, it's not a static map. We can't yeah. trust for something to be where it was last year. Exactly. It won't be. It'll yeah. moved. So there's constant calculations going on as yeah. to, we Which, need to look at this star. We better do it in January. Otherwise yeah. <laughs> our next chance is going to be six months later or exactly. something, whatever it might be. Yeah. I mean, pros and cons. Uh, pros, you actually get to see a lot of different stars. And so uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shame that you don't have to schedule If you miss it, you miss it. But yeah. at least you get a, a nice revolving door. Well, that's <laughs> of the cool thing being in the Southern Hemisphere as well. Because being little yeah. Northern Hemisphere babies like we were, <laughs> yeah. you look at the sky and yeah. if you're lucky and you're not light polluted, you see yeah. tons of stars, sure. But the first yeah. time I ever saw a clear night in the Southern Hemisphere, oh my God. it yes. blew my tiny mind. Yeah. I was like, what are all, what the, the, the stars everywhere? Yeah. Are they all that was everywhere? me like six days what? ago. Yeah. And I was like, number one, Orion's upside down. Number two, what the hell is that? Oh my God, it's the two Magellanic clouds. <laughs> upside down yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Everything flips. Yeah. And you're right. I was like, how's that smudge? Yeah, I was like, am I wearing things? glasses with sponges yeah. on it? Nope, those are just two, two big old things. Yeah, it's amazing. My throat is kind of really sad. My favourite thing is um, observing in the north in Atacama is the walk you take from the little residence where we live. It's like a yeah. hotel, basically. Yeah. Um, you have to walk from there at about 10 o'clock at night up to the control room. Yeah. And we stay there until the morning. And if it's the right time of year, the walk that you take through the desert, basically, yeah. for just five minutes. And I saw a little fox there once. <laughs> but the walk I was doing was sort of paved the way above me by the Milky Way. You yeah. Can see oh my gosh. The plane of it, the, yeah. the, the literally milky, uh -huh. the, the white the path way. <laughs> pointing to where I was going. And all these stars That's everywhere. Amazing. And you know, you get into the control room and you're looking at a computer and just yeah. pressing buttons. And yeah. It's like detached sometimes, but when you can see it all out there, yeah. you can think, well, we're gonna be looking at that next. Yeah. This is all going to be moving over. I'm gonna look at this and that's yeah. what that is. It makes you a kid again. It makes I know. it all seem yeah. Worthy. When I was at Paranal the other day, and and I love that I can say that now casually. Just when, you know, when I was observing with one of the largest telescopes <laughs> in the world, as I do. Um, and yeah, so we're in the control room all night, and then um, you know, you 
we had like a four hour exposure. So then it was pretty easy to just sit back and relax. And so you take a little break and you go out on the platform and it's just literally one of the best star nights you can see. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I just laid down on the ground <laughs> looking up kind of thing. And yeah, the, the Milky Way, especially it's, it, it's so cool. It's so Amazing. cool. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, makes, it, it really brings it back and it's, it's so easy to be like, Oh, well, you know, in astrophysics, it's so important to study the, but like, no stars are cool. Yeah, that space is cool. <laughs> that's like really, that's kind of uh, the so longest short. The other day in the Atacama, because the site on which Alma was on used to belong to indigenous people, and yeah. they obviously have super clear skies. But yeah, I'm sure I read somewhere that them, the, the Atacamenian people yeah. didn't necessarily look at the shiny stars. That yeah, we do. Yeah, but they sort of use the constellations to navigate the dark patches. Like they would oh. observe the dark bits yeah. and know where the dark bits were, and that that's meant interesting. something. And yeah. We now look in those same dark bits now to try and find distant galaxies or yeah. black holes or whatever it might be. But there's always kind of a, whatever way you're looking at something, there's always a different way yeah. to consider it. And yeah. you're constantly learning that in science, but people yeah. have been doing this, as you say, forever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, and, it, and it's actually so important to talk about the the, the role of indigenous people in, in early astronomy. And I mean, we, we now go and build big observatories and like all of these indigenous grounds and stuff. So it is important to reference that. Um, but there's, it's really interesting because you can also look up uh, all the different constellations in different sort of uh, civilizations. And yeah. it's so interesting that obviously there's some stars that are brighter than others. And they're the ones that people tend to make up constellations for because uh, you're sort of naturally drawn to that. Uh, but it's so funny to see all the different names for like the same collection of stars and then seeing how people drew lines between different in different yeah. constellations, literally. Yeah. Um, I think and in Swedish, uh, the the Milky Way is called Wintergatan, which means the winter street. Because okay. to us, with the snow, we're like, oh, well, I know what that is. That's snow, that's obviously. Snow. That's a street covered in snow. <laughs> it's the winter street. How many uh, actually about how many different languages went with something milky? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, is it the, Spanish. That's pretty much milky. Yeah, is it, the, is it the... There was Greek god boob milk sprayed something that's that i think that's what <laughs> it comes right. from yeah something like that some some mythological yeah. person was breastfeeding i think i think that's what the the story was and in the north we're like no that's snow that, that looks like snow that's clearly <laughs> snow the ground, crystals. Snow the sky. <laughs> makes sense yeah, yeah. Tomato, to make tomato <laughs> mm -hmm. so before we wrap up i then want to also ask you um if you could talk to I don't know, 10-year-old, 15-year-old, 18-year-old James. Oh, he's cringing. You can't see him, but I can. <laughs> Any advice for anyone? Anyone who's listening to this who might be interested in, they're like, yeah, I kind of want to get a fantastic job in the beautiful Santiago, South America, where I get to go to one of the best telescopes in the world uh, once a week. Uh, any pieces of advice? Yeah, you can get into astronomy as a career through loads of different ways um you could be super interested in maths you could be super interested in physics you could be a chemist who ends up doing astrochemistry there's tons of different routes to do it um if you're a little 10 year old me <laughs> the thing to do is to keep studying your maths and physics um and keep following it there's always ways to jump out and do other stuff there's yeah. always ways to change path and try something different um and especially if you're doing the sort of subjects you need to do to do astronomy, maths and physics, you can always apply them somewhere else. Um, but if you're enjoying it, keep doing it. Keep finding ways to do it. Keep applying for things that will let you do it. Because yeah. the perks and the nice things you get to do in this shop, the places you get to go, the things you get to see, the people you get to meet, um, seeing something like a bit of data or something you found 
and knowing that you're the only person to have ever seen that, like just for a few minutes maybe before you tell someone else, you know something about the universe that no one else does. That's really cool. That really kind of makes a lot of it worth it. Um, so yeah. That's a really nice way of putting it. I mean, I agree. You put it more eloquently than I could, <laughs> but absolutely. And, and especially I think for me, something I didn't realize uh, until later, until it was too late for me, I was already here, uh, is is how international and how much traveling and how much cool yeah. collaboration. I mean, it's really not just like old men muttering in a basement over a blackboard. It's it's really like a collaborative, social, uh, amazing kind absolutely. of job. Yeah, it's not, it's not, as you say, it's not stuffy old Einstein people in no. wood-paneled rooms anymore. It's, it's a modern environment. It's people from all over the world have come from all sorts of different backgrounds of We've got something to show you yeah. and tell you. So yeah. No, yeah, it's a super exciting thing to work yeah. in. And if you've got the chance, definitely go for it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, James. Um it's a beautiful sunny afternoon in Santiago, uh, in Chile here. Uh there are Pisco sours that are waiting to be drank. So I'm gonna thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Rabbi. Um you and good luck with the planet formation. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> with the telescopes. I'll keep going. Thank yeah. you. The Interplanetary Podcast is Alive! Right, there we go. That was very enjoyable. You did learn the lesson, however, that you need two microphones running at, yeah. at any one time. Apologies. I I was on the go. I was a woman on the go. I only had so much luggage space, so I didn't bring my fancy microphone. But you also thought you were recording on one. But luckily, you did, you yeah. did record on another device, which yes, is... Exactly. Always good practice. Very, very space thing to do to have redundancy. Exactly. To have uh, yeah, a mean, paranoia. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, no, well, exactly. super, super interesting, super cool. Um, and, you know, I also learned a lot, uh, both from James and from my visit about that. I mean, ESO does so much. ESO has so many cool things and, and it's it's such a wide, broad thing um, that to, to the, the fact that we have so many great telescope facilities uh, in this day and age, feels very fortunate. They have their headquarters in Germany, don't they? The yeah, European exactly. Southern Observatory. But just if that if that one telescope or the or the sort of four combined, mm. the the uh, are are generating like I mean it's it's practically two peer reviewed papers a day. <laughs> It's, exactly. it's, it's like that that is it, it just goes to show you know that that's incredibly massively important and you get all you, loads of loads of stuff that's been kind of discovered and of course yeah they work like you said they're working on the extremely large telescope and that might be the thing that cracks dark matter and dark energy right might so crack reality it, it, who knows it might yeah it might crack reality so who knows Enjoy so yeah left. it's like it's it's super important it is super important before we um before we wrap up I was watching a very, very cool program on PBS Space Time, space-based telescopes, mm. but not like the James Webb one, but more these solar-based ones. Have you ever heard of this idea that you use the sun as your gravitational lens? Oh, yeah. So you, you, you sort of just fly a fleet of spacecraft out to this point where the sun focuses light to a single, mm -hmm. but it's not actually to a single point because obviously each wavelength gets focused down to a different focal point. Yeah. But you can kind of fly along that point, taking various different measurements yeah. as you go down, and uh, yeah, and and it's unbelievably powerful as a telescope. But the surprising thing is, there's no kind of technological reason why you can't do it. So 
it, it is something that could very well be feasible that we could um, use the sun as a uh, as a as a telescope, an unbelievably powerful telescope oh, wow. as well. It's the sun, the yeah, moon, the earth, everything. Uh, we're we're we're, ruli- we're ruling the celestial bodies. You can use the moon and the earth as uh, telescopes as well. Did talk about it on podcast one seven nine. David Kipping's telescope. Terascope, yeah. The telescope, yeah. A genuine possibility yeah. to increase that kind of massive... That'd be amazing. It's regarded as the crisis in astrophysics is this spiralling cost yeah. of every time you increase your mirror size, your light-collecting size, that the, light, uh, the, the cost of it goes up exponentially. Yeah. It's not like, oh, let's build it twice as big, it'll be twice as expensive. Uh-uh. No, oh. <laughs> Oh, no. way more expensive exactly. yeah it just goes up it goes up exponentially in the same obviously with space telescopes yeah and it's also like at some point it's it's not be- because of the the engineering issues with making uh these large mirrors and everything is it's it's also not that straightforward from from an engineering perspective that you're able to do it you're practically at the edge of what's possible for mirrors to be the size yeah. of because of yeah the fact that they would sag and everything else so you, yeah. you kind of have to go into whole new materials etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah engineering is there's always an engineering limit to stuff exactly you hear the engineers you got to step up your game <laughs> yeah for goodness sake engineers yeah, totally. now so so i'm assuming lynn you've gone out and you've taken all this you've got all this data mm-hmm. i'm assuming that's where your work begins that that's yeah. the fun part and now I you're just going to so- be sat in front of a computer for the rest of your life existence. yes yeah <laughs> crunching crunching those numbers crunchy crunchy yeah and i'm god it's it's gonna be a busy busy winter <laughs> put it that way did you get a nice sort of run of observation? In other words, yeah. those three nights that you had, you had you had clear weather. Yeah, we had a great. Presumably, that's your fear when you fly out that, that yeah. you, you you fly out and and it's just cloudy for your observation yeah, days. Absolutely, or... you'd be surprised how often it can rain in the desert. Um, and and it's also just that it doesn't need to be fully raining for it to be bad weather. You can have bad winds and you can have humidity and you can have all of these things. Um, but uh, so the thing that we often talk about is seeing, which is kind of a measure of how good your resolution solution is um and you want the scene to be low because that is like a measure of the the smallest thing you can see um and um so we had the lowest seeing we had which the best seeing we had i think was like 0.4 or something which is amazing and then at one point we were like oh no we've got 1.3 seeing oh no whatever shall we do for us whereas for many telescopes in the world it's like two or three that's <laughs> that's yeah. that's what you're hoping for. And whereas at at Paranal, if you get if you get to a seeing of two, then it's like you you close the dome. You've got you've lost the night to bad weather. Whereas some observers in the world is like, oh my god, I've got a seeing of two. Like this is amazing. <laughs> so the standard is very high in 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 Paranal. And you mentioned that you, when you go out onto the viewing deck, yeah, you get the night sky. Presumably that is mind-blowing it's, seeing the night sky from that particular yes like with your naked eyes yeah. seeing as clear a night sky oh, as you can possibly bit. see and you know what else i also felt a little bit claustrophobic because there was so much stuff above my head <laughs> the night sky <laughs> is usually dark empty uh but suddenly i felt like there was this low ceiling because there were so many dots above my head <laughs> felt like i was is wearing it, a helmet wh- it was amazing. yeah and is it Obviously, as a Northern Hemisphere yeah. person, was it was it a little bit difficult? Orion was difficult upside down. To, yeah, Orion's upside down. Yes, but also you're know, you're missing a whole bunch all of the references. Of, uh, all your reference points. Exactly, like I was very confused. 
I saw the the two Magellanic clouds as well. Oh yes, yeah. Uh, and yeah. So so they must be really clear. Yeah. So that I mean, so there must be one of the furthest things you've ever seen with your naked eye because so. they're a, so. they're a long way away, yeah. aren't they? The, they're like it's, so. it's 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 it looks like two smudges on your glasses. <laughs> Uh, yeah, basically, so they're not. I mean, they're not. Yeah, but, you know, you can't see like a, an outline. They're two smudges, but they're beautiful smudges. Yeah, yeah, but that. I mean, that's that's still incredible. I mean, yeah. you're seeing an object that's just unimaginably yeah, exactly. far away, and exactly. that, so yeah, at that point, you're probably seeing the furthest object you've ever ever seen. I think so. Although occasionally, when I've been out in the night, in the uh, like looking up, I can just about see a smudge of of um, Andromeda. Which is obviously which a lot is, further away. Which is yeah, and and cooler, but, I guess. But, well, no, not really. But you really, you really have to concentrate hard to see that. Yeah. Whereas like the imaginary clouds, that is, it's it's very much it's like, oh, what are those weird two smudges? Like you you see them. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. With that night sky, anyway. So. Yeah. Did you have a pair of binoculars? No, I didn't. I just had my eyeballs. Oh, I know, but imagine. I, know. I mean, just like it is. I, I do honestly think that a pair of binoculars is one of the best things to ever own as an astronomer. I think you're right, actually. More, more than more than a telescope, because it's just you you, you just do put them in your pocket. Put them in your pocket, but it it, it somehow feels more magical that you're seeing it with both eyes. Still, yeah, I don't know what it yeah, is about I it, agree. but yeah, it's really it's really really no, cool. It was amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm I hope to be back. I'm extremely jealous. <laughs> I'm extremely jealous. So yeah, and the next back. time, obviously, you're ta- you're taking me with you next yeah, time obviously. as a kind of yeah. I need my co-host. Yeah. So. <laughs> It's it's this whole thing you don't get it yeah exactly well you take me to the spaceport and I'll take you to Farnell uh, okay that? that's yeah fair. okay that's that, fair. We, we've got we've got a we've got a we've got a deal yeah. right that's it uh, uh, th- thanks uh, very much for bringing those stories back Lynn I will say that um, if you're able ever able to go um, it's it's such an amazing experience um, I do think they do tours uh, of it. I think it's maybe once a week or something. So you can pay to go to have a sort of guided tour, um, even if you're not uh, getting any magical uh, telescope time. Um, it was so amazing. And and I think for me as well, it's it really brings it home a little bit. Like why we do astronomy, to, to sound cliche, it, it really sort of reminds you um, what it's really all about in a way. Like seeing light through a telescope is, is ultimately how we studied the skies. Um, yes, we use modeling and computational and all this stuff, but but observations is a very, uh, very special part of astronomy, I think. Yeah. And, and really telescopes have only been around for like 400 years. Yeah. Put it this way, when you're out there in the desert and looking up at that uh, night sky, you can absolutely tell why so many centuries, millennia of art and religion and philosophy has been inspired by that beautiful night sky. It's yeah, really, yeah, really no, special. Actually, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. De- I, I, I definitely would agree that there's a lot of people that sort of say that that one of the sort of big losses of being a modern human is our disconnect yeah. from the night sky, and yeah. and of course it, it, that is our gateway. Particularly, really, now we know what it is. It's it's almost frustrating that that we've lost our connection to the night sky just at the time where <laughs> we're figuring we've started out. Yeah. To, well, we've, we've understood exactly what it means that yeah. it is this just unbelievably vast place yeah. with, and, and we have a, a tiny, tiny place, a tiny stage in this enormous universe to, to play on. Incredible. Anyway. What a nice thing to end on. on. The, uh, it does a very nice thing to end on. I am definitely going to get my telescope out tonight. If it's a, if it's a clear Absolutely. night. It, the, the astronomy season has started. Yes. Finally. Yes. Yes. Finally. <laughs> 
go away go away son right <laughs> thank you very much Lynn Thanks. I'll let you get on with your day I've got to go as well we've done this extremely early in the morning I know Ugh, horrible it's crazy it is a bit horrible but, why, uh, why would yeah, astronomers so want to be awake in the morning uh, oh, disgusting yeah, exactly. you should be observing at night <laughs> bye bye Lynn bye bye, bye, bye spodcats bye.